Greetings, Questa, and welcome to the Meddlesome Meeples. Grab an ale, sheathe your axe, and join us fireside. Here's your host, Matt Williams, with Richard and Heather. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Meddlesome Meeples. I'm Matt. I'm Richard. I'm Heather. So, Richard, what games are we talking about this week on the Medicine Meeples? This week, we are going to be talking about Shadow of the Elder Gods, a scary Cthulhu game, and a maybe not quite so scary, but a bit disturbing, Bears vs. Babies. To put it mildly. <laughs> recently arrived through Kickstarter. Actually, both of these are Kickstarter games, although Bears vs. Babies is recent and Shadow of the Elder Gods is an old Kickstarter yeah, game. Yeah, one of them you kickstarted, someone else kickstarted that and, and then, then I got it for 350 at the bring and buy at UK Games Expo nice so that was all all well and good um, in Tiny Meeple's Big Talk we're going to be talking about Han Solo yep. versus Malcolm Reynolds Ooh. not fighting just oh. deciding who's cool although they did a fight a bit a little, little, little bit, bit fighting that's yeah. harder <laughs> yeah it is yeah. talking about which which one's the cooler character and which is the more developed character well one got together with Leia so that pretty much well, yeah, well, Han got Leia, and Mal kind of got Inara. Leia wins out. We shall see. I, I do actually agree with that. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Did I just ruin that whole thing? <laughs> no, no, that was actually a different opinion. We didn't speak about that during it, so... What? Fine. Really? No. Okay. Well, I didn't know if you were going to watch, and I didn't voice my opinions on Leia or Inara in front of a oh, camera. Oh, like you cared about that. <laughs> <laughs> you have Leia in your wallet. Uh, this, is, this is getting somewhat more personal than I intended. See, when we have these discussions, I don't know these things, so I can't bring them out. But yeah. He does, he does. You found it in, in someone gave you a jacket, didn't they? And they had like a picture of it in like the full gown thing. And you just thought, Not, I'll keep it that. Was, it was, you know, when... And it just stayed there. When, when Luke, and I'm fine with it. When, when Luke... Oh, as long as you're fine with it, yeah. yeah. You've never been fine with it. <laughs> You know when Luke walks into the uh, and yet it's still there. Walks into the cell on the Death Star. I'm not dying. And she's though. lying there on the bench. <laughs> oh, okay. It's yeah. that. It's that shot of her lying there on the on I the knew bench. And you were useful. With her, she's not lying in front of Jabba. That's a no. It's not okay. slave layer. It's layer in the white dress. Right. I'm not telling you where I keep my slave layer pictures. Um, <laughs> okay. So that's going to be the subject of our tiny meeple's big talk. <laughs> no, not where not. I keep my slave layer <laughs> pictures, but Han versus Mal. A and future one. We'll talk about that. Richard, Tome Talk. Tome Talk, you are going to talk about a book. I am indeed. And it is something about Dragons and Autumn. Yep, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, the first book of the Dragonlance Chronicles. Oh, that one. Um, mm. Which may or may not be by Tracy Weiss and Margaret Hickman, or it may be by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. The cover got eaten by a dragon, so we don't Yes. Know. So, that's what we're going to be talking about. What's everyone been up to? I've been Briefly. doing um, well. Star Trek Online has been pretty good this week because there's been an event on. It's like the this, event. Yeah, yeah, the event. It's the Arena of Sompek, which is like a, a Klingon type arena. Like it's meant to be in the holodeck, but the thing is, cryptic. The, the company didn't think it out very well, so it's actually there's no real incentive to do the best you can and kind of get to the end of it. It's kind of better to kind of be quick, like get to round five and then everybody die, mm. and. It's just interesting. It's been so good because you have to chat to everybody to see what everybody's okay with at the start because some of the players want to carry on for the full 20 minutes even though that's a little bit of a waste of time but some people want to do it. And it's pretty cool seeing how fast we can get through the first five rounds and then try to just let the enemies 
defeat us. Mm. And sometimes they are incompetent, and it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny to get blasted by the most powerful enemies in the Star Trek universe, and they're just missing, and they're just standing there doing nothing. So, <laughs> so that's been pretty good. Um, I've been playing on uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. In fact, yeah. I, I started playing on Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2 on the PC, um, and then I had to go out somewhere, so I downloaded Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic onto my uh, onto my iPad. Good, so you didn't have to stop uh, playing. So I could play... It's a different game, but it means wherever I go, I can play on Knights of the Old Republic. Great, because it's very Moorish, isn't it? It is. (laughs) And I love love both games, but I do prefer Knights of the Old Republic 2. And part of that is because I think Kriya is such a cool character. Yeah, kind of a medium Jedi, not Sith, not Jedi. It's more like a grey Jedi. Yeah, And I just think it's sort of a little bit more nuanced than the first... Oh, the Republic. themes are brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I love. I mean, I love both games, and every now and then I go back and play them both. Uh, and they're obviously modern technology, modern visual effects are much superior to what they did back then. But the gameplay is so fun. You got such freedom, haven't you? Yeah. In the Star Wars universe, which is what you want. And everything mm. you do, you know, can earn you light side or dark side points, and mm. you know, it's just really interesting. And sometimes I, I just think, well, I'm just going to do what I would do in that situation. Dark and, side. Uh, <laughs> I tend to go sort of around just above light to a little bit below dark side and fluctuate. Oh, right, sure, in the dark side. And then other times <laughs> I think, you know what? I'm going to play this and I'm going to go full Sith. Yeah. Or I'm going to go full Jedi and try and get the Jedi points up to the top or dark side points to the top. Yeah, I've, I've thought about doing that kind of thing sometimes, but I always end up wanting to be good. <laughs> I, feel, I feel sorry for the NPC characters and stuff and help them and then, oh, that, that's all my Sith points gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Vader would not be proud. No, he wouldn't, no, but um, Jedi Council would think I was okay, but, like, who cares about that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just sit around on Clearly not Anakin. Uh, uh, I just went to a butterfly farm. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's a lot it's more wholesome really, than what we yeah, do. Yeah, it's not really relevant, that, and just generally yeah, You've got fresh air, life. that's, that's <laughs> the difference. You're actually out there getting fresh air it and doing really things. It was really hot and muggy, mm. but, yeah, living things, doing things, yeah. Oh, well, you do that for the three of us. I watched you play games, but yeah. Heather is our uh, nature person on the show. (laughs) Yeah, so she could be like the nature correspondent, especially when it's butterflies. I can tell you, yeah, you guys can play games all the time. I'll just tell you what it looks like to be outside. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just open a window occasionally and just, yeah, this is the weather today, not that you'll know. Well, the two of us get paler and paler and more sick. (laughs) (laughs) So, there we are. That's what we've been doing. And let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Quest Report. And today we're going to be talking about something that could have been one of our Tiny Meeple's big talks. It could have been who would win, a bear or a baby. Which would be (laughs) a pretty quick one, I think. I think it would be fairly one-sided for a Tiny Meeple's big talk. But it depends on the baby. If it was Superman's baby... You never know. Yeah, so, yeah, well, yeah, we never. Didn't Depends on the bear, it could be like the zombie bear. Mm, it could already be dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, instead of talking about it in Big Talk, we have a whole game on that very subject bears versus babies. So we've got a quest report about it today. Now, this is a recently delivered Kickstarter. It's from the same people who brought you um, Exploding Kittens. Dun dun dun. That's scary. And it's. 
again, a card game that's meant to be more humorous than it is serious. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, uh, with Exploding Kittens, is even less serious, I think, than this game. Right. Um, this one has got more game, more depth to it as a game than Exploding Kittens has. Mm-hmm. But it's a very straightforward game, isn't it? You start off, you're given, um, once you're playing the full game, because there is like that introductory round setup, you're given a um, a beer card. Beer, B-A-A-R, not beer as in drinking, a beer card. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah, beers versus babies. It could have been like a, a toddler versus a, a six-pack of Stella or something, couldn't it? <laughs> beers versus babies would have been interesting, yeah. Um, but yeah, you're given a beer card, uh, which you can be used for any colour, because there are three colour categories in the game, red, blue and green, and they represent uh, land, sea and air. And the idea is is that you are drawing cards and playing those cards to build monsters. Building monsters, that's what it should have been yeah. called, really. Because bears feature in it a bit. <laughs> well, yeah, bears are like the special cards, aren't they? Yeah. And... You, what your monster is depends on what head it's got. So, like, the heads are the important thing. They and decide whether it's a land, sea, or air category. Yeah, and they have an initial strength, don't they? Um, mostly it's two, but for the bears, it's normally three. So I suppose, yeah, the bears are the special ones. The bears are more valuable, but they're also more, uh, they're also more vulnerable to unfriendly provoking, uh, which, <laughs> again, is a strange sentence that I didn't expect to be saying today. But... Basically, yeah, you're on your turn, you could take three... Well, the actions are dependent on the number of players. We've all, we played this a, a few pl- three-player games, and so yes. that meant we had three actions each on a turn. Although you can... It's, it's certain cards you play will allow you to take extra actions as well. Yeah. So on your turn, you are looking... Because there's no hand limit. You're going to draw some cards, and you are going to play them, if you can, to create monsters. So you need quite a bit of space in front of you, don't you? Yeah. Because some of the monsters can be quite big. You can have a head, a torso, legs, arms, and tools. So their hands can actually be holding tools. So I've just drawn a few cards and I've made a monster. This is a Berodactyl made of meat and pain, um, <laughs> wearing like spooky cat feet. Yeah, so, so you read the cards downwards and it yeah. always kind of makes a sentence about the monster. Yeah. And to me, that, that was my favourite bit of the game, I thought. Because like you end up with the legs, some of the legs like could run at the speed of light and things like yeah. that. So, yeah. But it's a very basic game, isn't it? Because you're on your turn, you're going to draw some cards, you're going to play a few cards. You can just, you don't have to draw if you've got enough cards to make it. If you've got the cards in your hand that you just want to put down, you can spend your turn playing all those cards. That's one option. Another option is do a dumpster dive action, which is to go into the discard pile <laughs> dive. and uh, pick a card out, or you can provoke one of the armies. Now, when you provoke... Provoking babies. Provoking all, babies. All the types of turns sound funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you provoke a baby, you turn the, the, the cards in that stack face up, because if you when it, whenever you draw a baby card from the pile, it goes straight into the relevant baby army. <laughs> And um, <laughs> you're just making me laugh by saying these things. <laughs> so there's the fake baby in this baby army. There is a new jet ski baby. There is a super ugly crab baby. There's a Portuguese mano baby, and there's a baby torpedo. Now tallying all that up, that has a combat strength of eight. So you would be looking for the relevant uh, monster types, the sea monsters that everyone's created, and you're looking for an army with 
eight, you know, more than eight to beat yeah. it. Because if there's a tie, uh, it's basically a draw. Um, and if you beat it, it, and you're the highest pointer out of the armies that have beaten it, you get that baby army as points for the end of the, the game. But all the sea monsters um, get discarded, don't they? They go to your hand. You're the monsters you use get discarded. Yeah. Uh, the sea monsters, but the, and the sea babies go to your well, not really your hand, just your trophy deck. Your pile of dead your pile babies. of dead babies, yeah. Mm. Um, and that's the that's basically the game, and it's just waiting for the pile draw piles to run out and to see who who's got the most points at the end. Now these ba- it doesn't make you feel bad about fighting these babies because they are so weird on the pictures, like the. Obviously, the fake baby, he's just a, a rubbish bag with a face painted on. And he contributes, mm. n- contributes nothing. He has a, a combat strength of nothing. Like this super ugly crab baby, it's just a crab. And the torpedo baby, well, I suppose that's pretty bad, actually. <laughs> it's a torpedo with loads of babies on it. but Tied to it, I think, is the word you're looking for. Yeah. There's a trebuchet well, baby, there's a, um airborne poop baby... There's a half baby, yeah, a yeah. fake baby, a boar baby, which is basically just a uh, like half wild boar, half baby. So, yeah, basically, it's any card that's got the word baby in mm. the title is one that will have to go into the baby armies. But it's not obvious from the picture that what you're looking at is. A baby. And there are like special action cards as well, aren't you? Because there's like the tool cards that, as we said, will give you extra actions. There's cards that are wild provokes that, as soon as you draw them, you have to choose one of the armies to provoke. There's ones like the lullaby card. Uh, you choose a baby army and discard the top half um, rounding up so there are action cards as well that you can use as well as drawing monster cards I found it more interesting when the action cards were in the game yeah you don't have any choice either if, if someone provokes the army if you've got any monsters of that type so if someone provokes the sky <laughs> baby army uh, if you've got sky monsters you have they t- have to take part in that battle and so you can um, use the tactic of thinking, well, everyone else has got massive sky monster armies, I haven't got any, so I'm just going to take and provoke and make them get rid of their mm-hmm. monster armies. That's a strategy that uh, you can use. Richard, I think we know what your thoughts on this game are. <laughs> Would you like to share them? I did find it funny when we played it the second time. And that's not not normal for a game like this. Normally it would be the first time mm. that you find it the funniest, but I think I found it a little bit frustrating the first time we played it because um, I was coming, I had a lot of cards that I couldn't use and I wasn't actually able to make a monster, but I think because we'd shuffled the cards better the mm. second time and also we'd put in the action cards because the it's very much intended, I think, for like at a party mm. kind of thing to be played by people that maybe don't normally play games yeah I'd agree because the rule book's almost like apologetic about having to teach you a few rules mm. about it and at a certain point it will say now just stop and just have a game mm. and just learn it by playing which obviously is a very good way of doing it but you play it without some of the other rules and then after you've played your first game it tells you what the rest of the rules are you get the action cards stuff like that and then it was a, a lot more interesting and I loved making the monsters. That was really good. Um, but apart from that, the the gameplay isn't amazing, and no. I didn't really care who was winning or which army got defeated. It is just fun to turn over the the baby army cards and see what babies the monsters are fighting and stuff like that. And just like I say, to read 
what your monster is like and just be able to make a cool monster. I mean, you could do it without even playing the game. You could just get a load of these cards and just make your own monsters. Yeah. So, although it is kind of cool that they then get to actually do something, even though it's absolutely ridiculous what they do. But um, as f- funny games go, I think there are funnier games. I think the Rick and Morty Total Recall, that would be my choice of mm. what to bring out with other people, even if they haven't seen Rick and Morty. I think the, the stuff that's happening in that is so random and so f- actually funny not just not mm. just random because that's only funny sometimes but um i think i would prefer that one but this one for the monster building is quite good but um i think you could i think just going through the cards and having a laugh with people would probably be yeah you'd get enough out of this game doing that i have to say that for me i at times laughed when we played the, these games mm-hmm. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I mean, as a game, there really isn't much there. It's not something that I... It's not even, to me, a filler game, particularly. Yeah, it's a bit simple, um, isn't it? Yeah, it's maybe something that, as you say, with people who don't usually play games, that you mm. might have a funny half hour with building these monsters. Um, I think some people will definitely not like the idea of fighting um, b- baby armies <laughs> <Trigger warning>. with, <laughs> with, with large numbers of crazily created monsters uh, I don't think that's going to be everyone's cup of tea though it is a joke it is a it is a joke it's clearly a joke and the, as you said when you're looking at them most of the time the babies are so not like babies I mean this is an airborne baby poop and it doesn't look remotely like there's a baby on that picture at all and that was um, a dragon baby that's really cool that's the dragon baby yeah um, but then there are other ones where I think you know like the rocket with the babies tied to it so I might find that somewhat offensive um, yeah. but I I personally felt that I don't know there were times uh, the one card that really made me laugh I'll be honest was this card here that is made of meat and pain and I don't know why but for some reason <laughs> well, I just saw that and just fell into hysterics um, it's just funny that you brought that out and <laughs> made a monster out of it. <laughs> uh, so I've got a Beardactyl made of meat and pain. I th- yeah, I can't remember, that's but, pretty good. Um, but overall, I think this is the kind of game that once you've played it a couple of times or more, you, that novelty is going to wear off of making those monsters. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's enough game there to sustain it after that. I think mm-hmm. once that novelty is worn off, you're going to be like, it's just play something else I mean you mentioned Rick and Morty I'd agree that's a better game I'd also think something like Archer once you go blackmail the love letter version of based on the Archer series Mm. that's a better better and to me more fun but that's because I know the show you know this isn't a game that I'm particularly proud of owning (laughs) (laughs) Um, well I'm glad you didn't hide it it, you have shown everybody they have seen my shame Um, (laughs) and I will say I do think it's better than Exploding Kittens there's okay. more game to it than Exploding Kittens. Right. But it's still not one I can recommend. Okay. So that said, it does come in a funky furry box, which is fake fur. Um, <laughs> and it just looked funny on the having just having the box on the side. But there's so much better games out there. I like the Pomeranian of Light and Wonder. That was a good card. I mean, that's just... <laughs> yeah. And... It you can get a not safe for work deck as well for it, which I don't. It, it doesn't re- really add anything to the game. It just adds some strange cards. Like you can have a monster with axe nipples and things like that. But it doesn't really add any extra mechanics or anything like that. It's just more cards, but with things on them that you wouldn't play in front of your workmates. 
<laughs> yeah, if you want people to be a bit grossed out, then you could add those cards. But uh, overall, as I say, I, there were cards that, when they came out, did make me laugh. But I, I wasn't proud of it. <laughs> Who plays a game at work? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the other thing. Well, we all, of it, all of it's not safe for work. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you can call this work. Well, uh, no one's paying me for it, so I'm not going to. Okay. Okay. It's just something we do every week. <laughs> <laughs> we do it for the love of our audience. Oh, isn't that nice? That's a, a nice note to end our quest report on. We normally tell people to be to stay meddlesome, but uh, this is a bit too meddlesome, I think. Yeah, no, nothing should be this meddlesome. Yeah, be slightly less than this in your meddlesome levels. <laughs> And now on the quest report, we're going to talk about a game called Shadow of the Elder Gods. So, this is from Laboratory Games. This was a successful Kickstarter from a few years ago. And it's one of the games I came home from the UK Games Expo with. One of the ones by. So, the someone watching this, back. this might actually be have been your copy at some point. Who knows? Yeah, look what you gave up. <laughs> we're enjoying it now. This is obviously a Lovecraftian game. Um, a lot smaller in nature than a lot of the Lovecraftian games that people will be familiar with, but because it's only a small, kinder. a small board with five different locations, mm-hmm. uh, and we have our little standees for our characters, uh, which m- will move good. about those locations. Yeah. And the aim of this game is to stop the th- the th- go through the threat deck and uh, remove the threats, isn't it? Yes. So. There's basically four scenarios, but then there's a lot of random elements in that. Mm-hmm. The scenario... Including the randonomicon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you set up the threat deck, and you do that by, first of all, choosing which Elder God you're going to be facing. Mm-hmm. The first one is the one that begins with an N. I mean, <laughs> their no, names... Yeah, that is the guy. Oh, it's over here. So we've got There's these... also Yog sothoth is one of the other ones, isn't it? Yeah. So... The one that we oh no. Yeah, Hang on a minute, no, 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 no. It was actually uh, Gatonathoa that oh, we okay. started with. Now, the fact that I forgot who it was uh, just shows that we didn't actually get as far as fighting this thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, On any of the multiple games we played. No, no, but we ended up getting very close on the mm. on the last time. Just before I think we, we were, gave up. another turn would have allowed us to have won the game last time. <laughs> yeah, we but we en- we died on the particular we turn we were on. No, um, so this one is. It says in the rules that this one's kind of the easiest one to go yeah. for, and, and we still didn't beat it. No, uh, like as you said, there's also um, Yog Sothoth, and there's also Cthulhu, and he is the most difficult one to to fight. The Nyarlathotep um, one, I remembered that because he's the one that is very weird and you can't tell how difficult or easy the game's going to be with him because it's it messes it up so much. So yeah, first of all you set up the threat deck and you do that with various random cards. Some of them are random and some of them are specific to that scenario. Yeah. And the number of players. Yes. Yeah, you have a little chart of like which difficulty cards you put where now they are random and well the little kind of in between ones are anyway but you always start with the card of the one you're going to mm-hmm. fight but you start with the back of it now the threat deck works in a really weird way but it's cool 
Um, and it starts off with like what kicks off your investigation. Mm. So for us, it was the living mummy card, and there's this picture of a, a smiling. Well, it looks like he was smiling, but he's actually not, is he? It's some kind of dead guy, and it says, "Police found a mummified body with leathery skin. Somehow the victim is alive, while the citizen citizenry is baffled. We prepare." So that's basically what kicked it off, and then you put that card to the bottom of the deck. And on the opposite side of it, there's going to be your final fight with mm. with the boss. So the way the threat deck works is that there'll be an Arkham threat at the top, which will probably be that there'll be some corruption somewhere or somebody gets a bit of madness, mm. one of the characters does, something like that. And they are fairly bad, but there is also shadow threats, which are hidden. Mm. They're kind of things that are actually happening behind the scenes at the... The citizens don't really know about but we do because we are investigating the weird goings on but we also have the, the ring, ring of shadows yes yes which is very lord of the rings yeah and only one character can have this now this is a very special card and this is basically the main thing about this game is that as a group we have found the ring of shadows mm. or it has found us <laughs> so, <laughs> and basically one of us will have it uh, basically, whoever starts as the first player. But if you ever use it, you get a shadow token, which is a little eye. And if you have three of those, you can't use it anymore. Um, but every time you have a turn when you don't have the ring, you take away a shadow. So, so basically, it starts corrupting you as you yeah. use it. But then if you give it to somebody else, then... They'll be corrupted, kind of... and your corruption goes down. Yeah, basically, yeah, it ends up being kind of a little bit more okay. Um, and with the shadow ring, you can use it to find out what the shadow threat is. And the threat deck works in a weird way. But if you follow the instructions, you'll be fine. You just kind of turn it over, like the entire deck, and whatever it says on the back, that is what your current threat, shadow threat is. And then you can spend a certain amount of knowledge to get rid of it, at which point you go on to the next Arkham threat. So you can't actually get rid of Arkham threats. You can get rid of the associated shadow threat. And that moves you on to the next one. You basically you just have to get through all this deck to win the game. We only got through the first few, the first time, the second time, and uh, the third time we played, we managed to get past nearly all of them, and it battered us. I think what we've said so far it might uh, sound like the game is more in depth than we actually. It's on your turn. You can take three actions, can't you? Yeah, well, so these are the mechanics. I'm just going. Yeah. I was going. To you're going strokes. into the theme. You're going. You're going for the theme of the game. Yeah. So, looking at the mechanics, there's different actions you can take. Uh, you can travel from one location to another location. Uh, you can, if you are within a location with another player, you can give them uh, one or more resources, including the ring. Yeah, you can spend one of your knowledge because there's four kinds of resources here. Mm -hmm. You've got knowledge. Madness, bills, which is how many money bills you've got, and <laughs> muscle. So you can pass some of those resources on to another player. You can heal uh, using those resources by spending a knowledge to decrease your madness. Because if you finish your turn with five or more madness, then you're at you know the, we've lost the game. You can take a clear action, which means taking some of these corruption tokens that look suspiciously like Cortis off of a location. That's what they're meant to be, because you use yeah. muscle to get rid of them, which is like yeah. your hired goons beating them up. Yeah, beating up the cultists. Because mm. um, if, if at the end of any round there's ten of these or more on a location, 
then again it's the end of the game so you've got to spend muscle to clear that and also you can acquire now each of these locations this each of these five locations will let you uh, do something so you can for example go to Miskatonic University and do research and you gain a knowledge or you can go to the first bank of Arkham and gain some bills yeah you can go to the Church Street Game Club and gain a muscle by spending money you can go to Arkham Police and gain muscle uh, for knowledge for knowledge and that's a random amount because you have to draw a card to tell you how much of that you get Mm -hmm. or you can go to Minnie's Roadhouse which allows you to uh, buy or sell so you can buy knowledge using a bill and again it's a random amount or you can gain random amount of bills for a knowledge now while at these different locations as well at the, above the location deck, you're going to be drawing and playing asset cards, and these can only be bought. It will tell you what the, what it which what the card is. So, this one, for example, is a bank account. It tells you what ability that allows you to use, and it'll tell you whereabouts that it can be bought from. You can't buy it from anywhere else, so you have to go to a specific location to buy that before that card is, you know, replaced with another card on the next turn. Yeah, and you... some of them. Are, are relatively okay, but I think the best one out of there was the automobile asset, which I bought, which allowed me to travel without spending an action. The start of every game was Matt going to the bank, drawing out enough money to buy the car, <laughs> then buying the car, and it was actually quite a big advantage after that, because you could just kind of go wherever you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to use any actions on moving. So. Um, now, on the cards you have along each four sides you have some stats between 0 and 10 which as we say are those four resources and you're meant to track that using these little clips that that, that come with it but I just can't help but feel that over time that's going to damage the card and it looks pretty crummy so I actually used uh, some scythe metal tokens uh, for these because Obviously, the scythe metal tokens are based on old Chinese coins. They're circular with a hole in the middle. The blue it, ones we used, yeah. That's really right, nice. and it just it's a really nice way of tracking it, just by moving the coin up and down and letting the the, the uh, number show through that hole. But all in all, each of these characters that we have has a particular ability as well. So, for example, mine was Deep Lineage. I take one less, less madness when receiving it, and... Most of the time, I was only ever getting one madness, so it was just avoiding madness all, altogether for me at most of the game. Yeah. Because once you gain so much madness, you lose your special ability. No, no, no. You, you could gain any madness. Yeah. Which is annoying because, yeah. like, I would gain one madness, and I was Doctor Henry Armitage, and I was allowed to go to the, I was at the, at the university. I would gain two knowledge instead of one, and, but like. A lot of the time, I'd just gained one madness because I had the flipping ring, <laughs> and the, um, the threat card was targeting whoever had the, wi- the ring. Yeah. So, yeah. But overall, I felt like when we were playing this, that it was quite a lot of rinse and repeat for me. Mm-hmm. You were moving to a different location to get the resources. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was, I was having to think, oh, I've got to go and get money to get to get something. Uh, mm. and so maybe I'm going to get money so that I can hire some muscle so I can get rid of some corruption and it's kind of a bit of a becomes a bit of a cycle yeah um, but I still enjoyed it that yeah. was what surprised me actually because a lot of the time even though the, it felt kind of repetitive um, it was to get rid of a threat card so it wasn't like you were do, doing the same repetitive action 
you know, for the whole game. Yeah. You were doing it for a little while while you were countering like the threat card giving you lots of corruption or something like that. You get rid of the threat and then you'd be countering something else and it just felt like constantly you were trying to keep on top of a particular situation Um, which actually isn't that bad but even though there's not much variance in what mechanically what you're doing Mm -hmm. it still felt thematically enjoyable. Yes it did feel I felt it felt like uh, quite thematic like you say and although we ended up doing very similar things. I felt like we specialised a bit mm. because our characters had different abilities and it just made them... It, it kind of it was a good idea for us to do that anyway. I kind of kept feeling like I should be helping you and Heather to like, I should get some bills and buy some muscle to be able to get mm. rid of some corruption. But then I thought, well, you two are, are doing that and I could stay in the university and keep gaining knowledge to get rid of the actual threat because mm. that's because generally you can only use, use knowledge to do that so I think because you are quite limited in what you can do each turn yeah. like how many resources you can get I think it did kind of encourage teamwork mm. in that way and uh, I, I did enjoy that that aspect of it It's as far as Arkham games go and Cthulhu games go this is very light isn't it I mean mm. the um, it make, thematically it works well with yes. the mechanics um, it's a very light game. I do feel like it takes longer than it should for what it is. Mm-hmm. I think when we looked at the box and we thought, oh, it's 20 minutes, and then we started playing and realised it's 20 minutes per player and thought, well, that's probably fair. Yeah, though we died in 10 minutes to start with. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we played this several times and we nearly beat it on the last time we played it. But I do feel that this takes longer than it should for what it is, but I was still enjoying it. I wasn't getting to that point and thinking... Oh, can we just finish this and move on to something else? I was still actually no. actively enjoying playing and still trying to win. Um, but it does feel like it could have been, I don't know, somehow shortened, maybe a few less threats to make it a shorter game. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And I suppose you could house rule that. You could just remove, say, okay, well, we've got the deck made, we'll remove one random threat or even two random threats, um, and then you'd move through the game a lot faster uh, because... you're constantly resetting aren't you because you're spending the resources that you've accrued to get rid of one threat and then you've got to build up your resources to deal with the next threat so you're constantly resetting where you are so I think it wouldn't have made that much difference to have a few less threats and it would shorten the game maybe make it more enjoyable in doing so but as it was we played the full game and I enjoyed it Mm, so this is one that I think whether you like Lovecraft or not, you you can still enjoy this uh, as a light game. Yeah, and yet the the rules can take a little bit of a while to explain. So I think if somebody wanted just a light game, there are ones that are easier to get into. And I, I would think it's a light game definitely for people that like Lovecraft. I like think the rules are fairly straightforward in the sense of what you can do on your turn. Mm. I think it's when you start thinking about maybe the Ring of Shadows and the, how the various threats work that you need to think about it a little bit more. But mechanically, you've got five options, really. You can go to a location and do uh, one of five things, or each location has its own thing that you can do as well. So, yeah. And you get a handy little reference card that helps you understand that. So I think that point of view, I felt it was very easy to know what I could do on my turn yeah, that wasn't really an issue. But as I say, some people don't like Lovecraft. But then, 
obviously many people do because of how many Lovecraftian games that are constantly being made and sold. Yeah, so, yeah. as as a filler game, this is quite a handy travel size, and I could play this solo probably and quite enjoy it. Yeah, um, there's just a couple other things I wanted to mention. Uh, when you have got the sh- Ring of Shadows, you also have a shadow ability that you can use. Yes, and every player has one. Yeah, and now there's only four cards in the game because it's a maximum of four players. So and they're randomly dealt out, aren't randomly they? Randomly dealt out, so you've got a, a um, character who has his own ability, but then he also has his own shadow ability, which he can use when he has the ring. Um and I think that's quite a nice aspect. Mm. Like the ring does some has a different power depending mm. on who's got it. And I did really like this Ring of Shadows um, mechanic. And then the other thing, the randonomicon. So, for example, yeah. when you go to the first bank of Arkham and you're going to try and get some money, you draw a card to see how many bills that uh, that you get. And there are a couple there that are zeros, and the rest are cards between one and four. Uh, the same it goes for when you are. Um, trying to gain muscle at the police station for for, for, for knowledge, you draw and see how much you get. Uh, and at Minnie's Roadhouse as well, when you are either gaining uh, X amount of knowledge for a bill or X amount of bills for a knowledge, again you draw and see what you get. Some of the cards that you can draw will allow you to redraw if you get a, a zero. Some of the assets. Assets, yeah, that's just yeah. an extra ability. Other things that come into play, if there is corruption on a, on a location and you try to use uh, that location's ability. These cards also have success and failure on them in the middle section of the card, so you can you have to see if you're able to use that ability because there's corruption there, because the you know the courtist might stop you. Um, and finally, there are various effects that the shadow threat will say to do, like uh, this location will get madness, this location gets corruption, etc. And to find out where that location is going to be, you draw. And at the bottom of these randonomicon cards is a location. So you've got three different uses for these, and it's quite an interesting little mechanic having all that taken care of by the randonomicon. Basically, anything deck. that's going to be random, you mm. draw from the randonomicon. And I think that's a lot more interesting than dice because um, it just seems a bit more thematic. So, mm. yeah, I think that's. Uh, that's an aspect that I quite like as well. So, as I say, as a, as a light game, I enjoyed this. I will happily play this again. I, I could take it with me and play it solo somewhere. Would you have a big table? There are much better Lovecraft games out there, though. Um, and But a lot of those will take you a lot longer to play. And you need other people to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think this. I can play. we can play this quick... Uh, it would probably take us longer to play this than it would to play uh, Pandemic Cthulhu, Pandemic Reign yeah, of Cthulhu. Yeah, would be. Um, and arguably, in some ways, I'd probably enjoy Reign of Cthulhu more. I think. Would you? Um, but this one, I, it's quite small and travel sized, and I can play it solo. So again, it gives me more options. Yeah, well, as as a small game, I was very surprised at, mm. about how much depth it had, really. Because um, like the theme is very strong, and there is a lot for you to actually do and kind of like decide on while you're playing it using the teamwork. So, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by this game. We're recommending this one, I think. Shadow of the Elder Gods Play by it. Laboratory Games. Play it, or Cthulhu will eat your bike. <laughs> oh no.
The Meddlesome Meeples present music news and reviews in conjunction with Paradise Rock UK. Hi everyone, welcome to the Bard's Corner. So, starting us off this week, a little bit of tour information. First off, Yes have announced a 50th anniversary tour. Now, this is going to incorporate UK dates and European dates. Uh, this is going to run from the 13th to the 30th of March 2018. There's going to be 10 UK gigs in there to start it off. Plus, after that, they'll be going to Paris, Antwerp in Belgium, and Tilburg in the Netherlands. As well as that, uh, Martina Edoff is going to be playing uh, five UK dates in October. Uh, first off, it's going to be Crumlin in Northern Ireland, and then Stoke, Colville, Leicester, Bilston, and London. So that's between the 6th and the 10th of October. You can find out more information about that on our website. But not near us. No, not, no dates near us. First off, Mavara. Now, if you're not familiar with Mavara, they're a progressive rock band from Iran. They've been around for quite a few years now. Um, they're about to release their fourth album, Consciousness. That's going to be out on September the 11th. Um, I've only had a chance to listen to one song off there. That's well, it was a track called Time Makers. But that was quite an interesting track that had uh, quite a reminiscent sound to like Pink Floyd, Marillion. I think that one will probably go down quite popular. Very unusual band. Uh, second a bit of music news, Madam X. They've signed with EMP Label Group and they're going to be releasing Monstrosity on October the 27th. Now, in Europe, that's going to be anyway on the 27th. Outside of Europe, that's going to be on the 31st of October. Now, this is mixed by Michael Wagner and Mark Slaughter, two very well-known names. Now, their debut album, We Reserve the Right, was out in 1984, but they've got quite an interesting history, this band. They were formed in 1981 by uh, the sisters Roxy and Maxine Petrucci. Petrucci. Roxy then later went off to join Vixen. Um, oh. And there was an alteration of the lineup as well before that, where the original lead singer, Brett Kaiser, left, and for a short time, uh, Madame X was actually fronted by Sebastian Bach, obviously best known as lead singer of Skid Row and as a solo artist in more recent years. So that's been uh, quite an interesting bit mm, of history there. Quite and, a mashup. Yeah, they're now re returning. The uh, Petrucci sisters are back together uh, with the original vocalist, Brett Kaiser. So again, that's Madame X Monstrosity out on October 27th via the EMP label group. Though I think the most interesting bit of uh, news we've got is Not Over Yet are releasing Axioms of Life on October the 27th. Now this is an international studio project, so Not Over Yet are actually an Italian trio, uh, I think the, a brother, a sister and another member of the band as well, and these three play rhythm guitar, bass and drums. So the vocals and the, the lead guitar on each track is performed by a different guest musician. So this is actually an international uh, project, uh, part, different parts of the album recorded in studios around the world. Uh, on vocals is Greg Iser, I'm not particularly familiar with, with his work, and Dylan Rose from Archer Nation. The other three uh, singers who perform on six of the tracks is Charlie Hune, he's currently le the lead singer of uh, Fargat, but previously he's uh, 
been the lead singer for Gary Moore. He's been the lead singer for Ted Nugent. Um, his Victory band is uh, very popular as a metal act. And also he sang with Axel Rudy Powell on the Wild Obsession album. Which has got a couple of my uh, favourite acts. Should have said that first. That's... Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the main thing I particularly yeah. know him for. Really, I liked his uh, stuff with Ted Nugent and Gary Moore, and I loved the Victory album. But the main thing I know Charlie Hume for mm. was because he was the singer on the first Axel Rudy Pell singer that uh, Axel Rudy Pell album that I heard, um, which meant he was singing for things like uh, Call of Princess and Snake Eyes. Oh, so. Very, very good singer. As well as that, Zach Stevens it does vocals on a couple of these songs. Now, he was the former lead singer of Sabotage. He's been performing with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And also, he's the, currently uh, the lead singer for Circle to Circle. Uh, and then the third um, big-name singer on that album is Blaze Bailey. He obviously was the former lead singer of Iron Maiden. He's the lead singer for Wolfsbane and is... Uh, released his own albums under Blaze. I actually met him. He's quite a mm. quite a big guy. Rings a bell. Yeah, he's quite an, or the name like quite Blaze, an imposing I mean. figure. Actually, he's quite a yeah. quite a big guy, but very friendly when you speak to him. Um, yeah. <laughs> the two lead guitarists that perform on the album uh, is Luca uh, Princiati, who was the le- been the lead singer over lead singer, the lead guitarist for the uh, last few years with Doro. Uh, Doro Pesha's last few albums he's been the lead guitarist he's been performing live with Doro and the other uh, guitarist is Chris Poland that might not ring any names so much for his recent work uh, but in years past he was the lead guitarist for Megadeth he's a very talented guitarist so quite a a lot of uh, talent performing it's a lot of mix as well really it's it's quite an interesting mix I'm quite looking forward to see how uh, that works across Mm. the different albums on vocals, I think each of the singers gets uh, two songs apiece. Mm. Um, but then on guitars, again, it's typically you get one lead guitarist to each of the tracks. But there's a couple of tracks there where both Princiotti and Poland play together. Mm. Uh, so I'm quite looking forward to hearing more of that when that comes out. And pinpoint which is where. Yeah. So that's, that's something I'm looking at, looking out for. That's going to be released on the 27th of October. Um, I'm not sure about the actual CD release dates, but as far as I know, that's the dates for the digital release. Mm. But one review for you this week. That's Epica, Yay! the Solace System. We like Epica. You've got a particular fan of um, Simone Simmons, aren't you? you what? Give her, it away! <laughs> you follow her, her blog and, and things like that as well, outside of the musical side. I didn't know you noticed. <laughs> oh, I notice a lot of things. Uh, so, Epica, The Solace System. Uh, this is not a full album. It's a six-track EP. That is out right now uh, via Nuclear Blast Records. So, six songs is about a half an hour um, track runtime for the EP. I think it's like 29 mm. minutes, 11 seconds or something like that, to be exact. Um, it's quite a heavy album. I'll live up to the name, then. Yeah, it's... Epica. So this is quite a heavy album. My favourite song on this album is actually one of the least heavy songs. Well, not one of the least heavy songs, but the least heavy song on the album. That's mm. Immortal Melancholy. It's quite unusual for an Epica song because they've done uh, like piano-driven ballads Violins, before. Yeah. Um, Solitary Ground comes to mind. Mm. But this is a very much a guitar-driven ballad. Mm. Um, 
that said, Simone Simmons' voice comes through on this the strongest, as it you know, stronger than anywhere else on the album. Some mm. really beautiful arrangements, some really beautiful vocals on there. But it's a very sensitive song when you listen to the lyrics as well and the way it's composed. Mm. Uh, two other songs on there that I really liked was "Fight Your Demons," which is a very intense, fast-paced song, and then "Decoded Poetry." Uh, that's very heavy. The drumming on there feels like it's mm-hmm. on overdrive throughout it's pretty much the entire song. song. Yeah, yeah. Um, it does feature some growly vocals, which I'm not. I'm mm. never uh, particularly fussed I think with. It's more like Beauty and the Beast, but like Simone's yeah. voice and yeah. Yeah, but it, I've never been a big fan of sort of growly vocals. But I really enjoyed that song. Um, it has that sort of choir harmony type mm. uh, sound that that is one of their trademark sounds as well. So. All in all, it's only six tracks, but I really enjoyed listening to that. I listened to it several times. The main highlight for me from this track is Immortal Melancholy, and that would have been worth me buying the album, yeah. the EP on its own. Obviously, the artwork is on the album is amazing as well. As so, always. As always. So, <laughs> there we are. I'm highly recommending uh, that. That's The Solace System. It's out now via Nuclear Blast Records. Go check it out. Tiny Meeple's Big Talk. Hello and welcome to this segment of Tiny Meeple's Big Talk. And this week we're going to be talking once more about Star Wars, but we're mashing it up with a different segment than we originally thought, because we were thinking of doing a uh, an Emperor versus Magneto. That's too near yeah. to what we did last week, and we can't really put the Empire through more stuff. No. So this time we've we've put the Empire through something, now we're going to put the Rebel Alliance through something. So, we've decided to take the two iconic uh, characters of Space Cowboys and <laughs> throw them together. So, this is Han Solo versus Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly and, and the film Serenity. Yeah, although it's not a who would win. It's not. This isn't a combat scenario. We're just going to be talking... I mean, we might, we might degenerate into that, but we're going to be talking about the characters themselves, aren't we? Yeah. Um, well, who's cooler? That's basically what it is. In a sense. I mean... That's what I was going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking sort of a, like a, a a character versus character as opposed to a a, a fight combat mashup. Because yeah, they're having just a, a coolness off, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a dance off or anything. It's a cool off. Because, yeah. like, if they were dancing, then they, neither of them would be cool. So. <laughs> I don't know. Solo's probably got some moves. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think he would. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to, like, if he's hanging around cantinas all the time, then you're eventually going to go on the dance floor. Yeah. So, basically, what we're going to be talking about is which of these characters are better written, which one's cooler. We may have a talk about what ha- would happen if they were to meet and scrap. But I think that's fairly obvious straight off the bat, which is one it? would happen. Well, yeah, of course it's obvious which one would happen. Okay. Who's... Let's talk about it later. Okay, we'll talk about that later. So I don't think it's obvious at all. Han Solo is legendary, isn't he? He is the legendary scoundrel. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of set the bar by which we measure all other scoundrels. Well, basically, there, were, there was like a battle between good versus evil happening in Star Wars. Mm. And it just had Han Solo kind of along for the ride, just kind yeah. of swaggering a bit and being cool and just like... Kind of an anti-hero type figure. Yeah, um, yeah. And who didn't grow up loving Han Solo? 
yeah, I, I, I loved the films and I was really, because obviously I was a kid, I was really trying to understand what was going on in the films and like the kind of interactions that Han was having with the other characters I just did not get because it was just <laughs> it's like it wasn't the kind of black and white that you yeah. normally have in that like good versus evil uh, very stark contrast Han see, like obviously he was a scoundrel and... I think as a kid you watch those films and you see Luke as the hero don't you and, yeah. and, you, and you associate with that as you say that clean cut bad guy good guy image mm. and then as you grow up you kind of go actually Han is so much cooler mm. um, and he is like the coolest thing about Star Wars really the original trilogy um, when you look at it he had the best lines didn't he yeah he uh, had the he was the character with more of a physical comedy than the others for example in A New Hope there's the scene uh, where he's chasing after those stormtroopers through the corridors yeah then, he's... <laughs> then he suddenly walks in and there's like a whole Legion of Stormtroopers and he's running back the other way yeah, as fast as he can yeah. I mean that is even now I watch that and that just cracks me up yeah and like and it's realistic it's what you would do yeah. I mean he is one of the heroes but he's also is is not so stupid as to try and take on the whole mm. empire he basically doesn't want to even be mm. there doing that particular job they had to talk him into it and there was the other part when he's on the Death Star when um, he's having that conversation over the intercom thing, and then he <laughs> yeah. just like shoots again. Boring conversation. <laughs> but I mean, I was in a way That's, that was that was one of his best lines in the in the entire original trilogy, though, wasn't I, it? Where I, I it's love, like, yeah. Oh yeah, we're all fine here. How are you? <laughs> How are you? And I have to think, like, out of all his his years of kind of blagging and grifting and being mm. a, like kind of a space merchant type guy who's on the wrong side of the law I just think it's so funny that he hadn't kind of picked up enough lying skills <laughs> I mean I, I thought it was really funny and everything and I love it when people are kind of characters are trying to well they're supposed to be trying to pull something off and they're obviously kind of only half trying <laughs> and that's what it seems like in that he was like he was kind of trying but then he's just like oh, okay you just shoot the thing and just carry on anyway <laughs> But I do feel that where we say that uh, like Luke was a very clean-cut, out-and-out hero character... Not kind of his bullseye and want that, with his teeth... Like a sociopath. Mm. Um, <laughs> apart from, you know, yeah, Luke is that character. But then you look at Han. Han was kind of like the anti-hero. But Han was, at the same time, very much a two-dimensional character. The only thing really that sort of let you look beneath the mirror was in A New Hope when um, when he was talking to Luke and uh, he was saying with regards to Leia, you know, do you think a princess and a guy like me and you, it was a, the first time he actually got like a little glimpse that there was more to the character and yeah. that although they explored his relationship with Leia it never really showed that kind of vulnerability after that, did it? Uh, for example, I mean, one of the most iconic scenes with Han in uh, the Star Wars trilogy was in Empire Strikes Back when he's about to be frozen in carbonite and Leia says to him I love you and he says I know mm. you know and that that is one of his cool, <laughs> coolest lines there but at the same time it kind of shows that they'd kind of closed up that kind of willingness to show the, a, a different side to Han I mm -hmm. think um, so he's very much a 
two, quite two-dimensional, but he is a fantastic character. He's a fantastic pilot. Uh, I I grew up and he was one of my heroes as a child. Han I don't Solo. know if I'd say he's any more 2D than any other character in Star Wars. Um, I'm not sure that's a. Um, I'm not sure that's really significant in the description of the other characters of Star Wars, though, because yeah. a lot of them, as you say, are those two-dimensional good guy versus bad guy. Yeah, but I thought he was like maybe 2.5D. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, um, he, it's, he it's did more have a... to him, I think, than than the other characters. It's more, more of an interesting character. Yeah. I thought. Um, but then I think you jump on into the future, and we've got Malcolm Reynolds. Now Malcolm Reynolds and Firefly. Uh, was the creation of Joss Whedon. Uh, he was portrayed by Nathan Fillion, and I think what they did with what Joss did was he took a lot of the uh, or a corner of the Star Wars universe. You know that kind of like rogue Tatooine type planets, and he made an entire uh, series of Fireflies based on that thinking? kind of. Do you actually rim- know what he did? Well, I'm just saying, this is that kind of inspiration. And I don't think when you look at Mal and you look at uh, Han, you can't deny the, the similarities in the characters. Mm. I mean, uh, they both live in space. Malcolm Reynolds is basically Nathan Fillion being Han Solo. <laughs> kind of. But um, I was been like thinking about the differences and uh, just to do this. Yeah. Well, and... Think about the similarities, dude. <laughs> well, at first I thought they were very similar. Um, and, they, and they kind of are. But I think... I think Mal is a much darker character than than Han. I think Han is kind of just he, he's just having fun in the spaceship with Chewie, just kind of flying around doing jobs and just kind of doing what mm. they want. Whereas Mal, he's very much he's still very bitter over that war and stuff like that. This is what I wanted to say. I think um, what when Joss Whedon made the the and he said Nathan Fillion character when he made the Malcolm Reynolds character mm-hmm. he kind of took the Han Solo type character and he gave him much more depth so we're introduced to Nathan Fillion in Firefly and he's a sergeant isn't he fighting the uh, yeah, fighting for the brown coats sort of serenity. at Serenity Valley yeah. against the the alliance and you I don't there's some things that you pick up on that is that he's a, a man of faith for example um, you see him in there, he kisses his cross for look and says a little prayer at one point quietly to himself. And yeah. then is is reassuring in a joking way one of his um, one of his troops that, you know, don't worry, God is not going to let us die because we're so pretty. pretty, pretty <laughs> we're yeah. too pretty to die. And bit in that way says then don't... that's built on throughout the late series later of him being a man who's lost his faith. Like when he says to book on the serenity you know you're welcome here but uh, god ain't mm-hmm. basically um and through that series you see that kind of reconciliation of his faith and his past coming together i think you're watching it wrong <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's also lots of more interesting stuff happening there is but i'm talking about like that element of his character there's also that constant war with the alliance in his mind he's still um fighting against the alliance in his mind that war yes. throughout his storyline mm-hmm. um, I mean one of the reasons why, why he helps River and and Simon is because of uh, he knows that the alliance are after them and anything the alliance wants he wants to stop yes yeah I just I just don't see him as being a like a take on the Han character just because he just seems so different to to me. Like he's a a soldier that's got a 
a ship and then decided mm. to go it alone because he doesn't like the way the civil war turned mm. out basically whereas han seems more like someone who has basically tried to just be a pilot and <laughs> ended up kind of having to take jobs mm. wherever he can and which is they've ended up in the same kind of place but i think although mal is very funny he's a very funny character i think he is He's also overly serious in a way that Han just really isn't. Well, I think the th- again looking at the past, I mean uh, Han was a failed. Uh, it was a dropout from the Imperial Academy, wasn't he? Is that in the? Is that like in the canon? Yeah. And well, is it, it was. Still in it there? was before Disney messed with the canon. That's why I didn't bother with any yeah. of that because. And I also thought that's what I was thinking. He should have been better at pretending to be a stormtrooper <laughs> on that thing. And I think it's really, it's really cool that. Well, he, he was a dropout, so he wasn't that, obviously wasn't that good at it. Yeah, he didn't get uh, the basic <laughs> protocol. He just asked his teachers how they are. <laughs> <laughs> so he yeah, was terrible at interrogation. Um, <laughs> but you've got the the differences are right there in the past, aren't they? Because I say he was a failed dropout and he became a smuggler. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas. You know, for Mao, his past is a lot darker because of his—he was a soldier. He's still carrying uh, a certain amount of trauma from that time, um, and he's—he's he's still in that kind of mindset of us versus them. And he's yeah. got his crew, which are the us, and he's very protective of of his crew. Mm-hmm. And anyone else, pretty much, in, can go hang themselves. That's the kind of attitude it gives off. And then in other episodes, you see actually there's a veneer behind this that he's actually got a really good heart and that he does try and help people where he can. Like with Han, he tries to go off, doesn't he, at the end of A New Hope and leave him to it. But he's then he, all he, those pots he of turns money. up. <laughs> yeah. um, but he turns up just at the end to to save Luke and, and help the rebels. Yeah. They've both got that kind of heart of gold to them ultimately. Um but I just feel that the character of Mal is a lot more nuanced and a lot more complex. Take, for example, as well, his relationship. So with Mal, he's got his relationship with Anara. Tries to. Um, but <laughs> but they both very... kind of... Neither of them will kind of admit their feelings towards one it's, another. It's very similar to... both of them drives their actions Yeah. for both of them. Yeah. And when with Han, he kind of doesn't want to admit his feelings to layer yeah. and vice versa and that drives some of the, their actions but I suppose over the course of the, the series and the film you, you've got more time to explore that narrative yeah. in the series than you do in a, in a film but uh, these characters are both incredibly cool characters I yeah, say yeah. Um, Han was a hero of mine growing up As you can see the firefly, the firefly the falcon on my on my t-shirt the, I've got some wisdom from Mal I, have I didn't you? Know oh, you've got well. some quotes for, for us. Yeah, yeah, because I was just um, trying they to. They better be good, or by, or by my, or I swear by my pretty floral bonnet, I will yeah. end you. That was one of the things because, and I think that one's <laughs> funny because, especially because we've got the Firefly game and the um, Mal's pretty floral bonnet is one of the cards mm. you can get, one of the little accessories you can get for them. So, um, I think it's funny that that's become so such a strong part of the mythology. <laughs> yeah. yeah, um no, I just thought about from my lines. Um they don't like it when you shoot at him. I worked that out myself. That was that was also in the Battle of Serenity. And the other one is if someone tries to kill you, you try and kill them right back. <laughs> so I just think they're pretty good mal lines. Obviously he talks in a very archaic kind of um cowboy fashion, I which was... some people 
really like. It's interesting to watch. I actually really enjoy listening to the male character talk because he is incredibly articulate with his mm. take with his put downs, for example, and his sarcasms. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, my days of taking you seriously are coming, coming to a middle. middle. Yeah, I've got that's that another well. one. Um, there was uh, there's quite a lot in tense situations where he will be really sarcastic. Mm-hmm. So, like, for Han, very snarky character, very sarky character. Well, Mao's got that as well, but the way he does it is, I think, a lot more articulate. And and that appeals to me. I like that kind of... Yeah, you know. although everyone in the Firefly universe talks like that. Yeah. And, but it's just like Mal being the captain, he's the one who's often coming out with something a little bit more either profound or kind of offhand and mm. stuff. And... Yeah, because like even like Jane, like he'll come out with some pretty long words, and like, you might not expect, but which is surprising are. from Jane. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a, a product of his future time mm. in a way, and I do, I do love it the way that he is a such a cowboy in space, and um, yeah, I can definitely see the similarity between these these two characters. Um, one thing I was also thinking about is. One classic time that I always remember about Mal was the time when he booted a guy into a engine, yeah. <laughs> um, which is was I think it was a shock to everybody, and a lot of people have pinpointed that as being the time when they realised that Firefly was a much different program than they were <laughs> expecting. Well, <laughs> I think if you go back to um, the very first episode of Firefly, um, when they first come and dock at a planet, uh, and what was it? Zoe says to Wash something about you know. It, things don't feel right hmm. um, and Wash says to her something along the lines of um, you know we're, we're criminals if everything was alright we'd, we'd be in jail <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, basically so yeah and on the Millennium Falcon as well like, but they, they don't feel like bad guys like they, they, they're not, they, they may be crooks in the sense of the being smugglers mm. but uh, you never really feel that they are bad guys. I mean, for example, with the train job when they steal those supplies, yeah, then they realise that they're medical supplies, not what they originally thought they were, mm. and that the, the townspeople really needed these medical supplies. They then went to great lengths and personal danger to take those supplies back to the town. They're not, yeah. they're not bad guys, but they, but they own... are outside the law. Yeah, well, the good, the good and bad is different to. Legal and illegal, mm. into it. So, and obviously, Mal doesn't really recognise the government that no. is that is under because it's he's still fighting. That's what I mean. In, in his mind, he's still fighting um, the Battle of Serenity Valley. I mean, he named, he bought his ship and named it Serenity for that reason. It's 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 not a particularly hidden fact about him. One thing I was I was thinking about as well, just another aspect is the fact that Star Wars was a U when it was out mm-hmm. or the the original trilogy. They were universal films, and Firefly was a 15. And if you kind of think that they were kind of doing similar things, like Han was being a smuggler the same mm. way as Mal was, like if Star Wars had been in a bit, uh, had a bit greater resolution mm. and everything, and it's like Han and Chewie could have been making very difficult decisions the way that Mal was. Mm. Whereas with it being a film that was friendly for kids, they had to keep it light. <laughs> and I just wonder. For one thing, how would Han have been in a film that was a fifteen, like like Firefly, mm. and what would Firefly have been like? It was a you. I mean, it's like I can't. It, true, just... true. I can't. I I find it difficult to imagine Han 
being edgy. That's the, that's what I think as well. And I could see Mal being edgy. Yeah, well, Mal is edgy. <laughs> but I can't I can't really see Mal not being edgy. <laughs> I can't see Han being edgy. And but also I think it's because I'm just thinking about the different contexts mm. that the characters are in. But also, I think what I like about each character is the context that they're in as well. So I think I like I like Han being that kind of unstable element in Star Wars. And also uh, I like the the way Mal fits into the Firefly universe as well. well so. Han, I mean, sorry, Mal, you know, he's, he's a good man. Well, he's a decent man. It's he's, he's doing yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a, another... And a, and a thing, brown yeah. coat will get that. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he has done some... Had some pretty good times. I mean, he always tried to defend Kaylee's honor, for example. Yes, he'd get snarky if anyone was bad to Inara. You know, mm. there's a lot going for him that says he's not just this criminal. Um, and he's got so much more depth, I think, than Han. Although I love Han Solo and Harrison Ford, but I just feel like he is definitely the better character. Okay, and you said though that you didn't think it was obvious who would win in a battle. Well, I've just got one more thing before we get to that. Um, Han, he has recently been in in episode seven. Yep. In which it was obviously years later, and he was a lot older, and he was still basically messing around, going on missions with Chewie, and <laughs> like it didn't seem as cool anymore. I mean, it was really cool to have him there, but it's like, oh no, he's still doing that. It's yeah. kind of a bit sad now. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you were feeling bad for Han. I was feeling a bit bad for Han, but I was glad he was still doing the same thing because it, it was from the Space Adventures. And I was really glad he got the Men- Millennium Falcon back and everything like that. Mm. Um, and you also do know that he had there had been a lot going on in his life in the meantime. Mm. And it kind of seems like he'd only recently kind of gone back to this kind of messing around well, in space because lifestyle. Without going into, I mean, I don't think we need to worry about. That's why I've not mentioned stage, it. But, no, don't um, say what happens. I'm not going to say what happens. Okay, I'm not. I can't bring myself to say what happens, Richard. Um, oh no, I was thinking. Might as different. well give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice on it <laughs> while you're at it. Um, but the fact is, yeah, I was very sad. Mm. Um, the fact is, is that that was because of events. Which we shall not mention that had happened in his well, life. Well, yeah, it's gone a back family. Of, yeah, and it that that kind of made it seem not so bad. And also, um, I was just glad he was still cool. Like right, in, in yeah. his uh, well, later H- years. Han, Han was the best thing about episode seven, hands down. Well, that would have to be another. Han and Joey. That would That's have to another be another one. conversation. It just kind of. I just kind of wonder what kind of situation Mal would have ended up in yeah. when he's the same age as Han was in episode. Seven. That was just mm. one other point I had. Now, as for it's not obvious. Um, I'm kind of surprised that you thought it would be obvious, but um, and I, I just really can't think. I mean, they're both quick on the draw, although they edited it later to make Han not quick on the draw, and that we, well, that made we thought Han shot angry. first, didn't we? Until George Lucas made it very ambiguous. Yeah, although he yeah he did kind of shoot from under the table, which is a little bit <laughs> underhanded, but um, yeah, and, and Mal's very quick on the draw as well. So if it's a fight just between the two of them. I don't know. I mean, well, Serenity versus Millennium Falcon. The Falcon's is... got quad cannons, <laughs> and the Serenity has nothing. Yeah, that's it. So yeah. that's very straightforward. That's very easy. Also, Han is one of the best pilots in the galaxy, and Mal chooses somebody to fly a ship for him. So that would be a different character altogether. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, Mal knows enough to pilot the ship. He's just not a particularly good pilot. 
is just adequate. Yeah. Um, so an adequate pilot with no weapons against one of the best pilots in the galaxy with quad cannons is quite straightforward. There's no doubt about that. Then if you think about hand-to-hand versus Han and Mal, yeah. or ranged versus Han and Mal. I think if they were to if fight, to a if they were to have a fist fight, they would make it hilarious because they, it can, would be. they both know how to like get beat up. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing is, you just know that they just keep breaking it up with brilliant little quips. Yeah, you know but, it. I wish I could just come up with what they would say, but no, those guys are witty. But you think about it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, ship to ship, Han every time. Not yeah. even close. Hand to hand, Mal every time. Mal he was, seems bigger. He, was a, he seems like he was bulkier, uh, more of a brawler. We've seen him get into uh, like bar fights and, and do well in Firefly. And then Plus, he was, a, he was an actual sergeant <laughs> in an army. Yeah. Um, and he's got He's a, he is a soldier, so you'd have a soldier against a pilot, and my money would be on the soldier every mm-hmm. time. Um, plus, we've seen him like in duels, yes, and win stuff like that. Um, and then firefight, we saw. I mean, the expanded universe, which is no longer canon, showed Han being a fairly good marksman, but we never really saw that in Star Wars. We we say Han shot first, but that was like three feet away under a table. And he got oh. into a conversation before he did any shooting. But he would do that. He'd like he'd get Mal into a conversation and shoot him under the table. But think about it. Remember when Dobson was on the in the um, cargo hold and Serenity, and he, he was holding uh, someone hostage. Hmm. Mal just walked in and shot him straight in the head from twenty like twenty feet away. Yeah, Mal probably. Mal is shot. a much better marksman. Yeah. Um, if he was three feet away from Han, I don't think it would really matter. And also, the we- difference in weapons technology. Obviously, his blaster is going to be more powerful than Mal's gun, but Depends a bullet in the brain is still a bullet in the brain. <laughs> yeah. It is. Um, but yeah, I think if it's hand to hand or in a, a firefly, it's going to be Mal every mm. single time. But ship to ship, it will always be Han. Yep. Well, yeah. Although that's just a footnote. Yeah, the, main, the main, thing main point is about who's cooler, and I'm calling Ma- it for Mal. Well, unfortunately, although Mal would be able to beat Han Solo in a fist fight and a firefight, he's just not as cool. You're saying Han? Yeah. So sorry, but Mal's not as cool as Han. <laughs> yes, he is. He's cooler, and I'm going to edit it to make sure that comes across. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But yeah, so there we are. We've disagreed on this one. I'm calling it for Mel, definitely. I think he's just so much more of a complex, nuanced character. Stop making your case. You already <laughs> said what it is. Yeah, I'm just no. making sure no one forgets that Han is a, not as complex and nuanced. Oh, Mel's a bit a of a legend. sad sack. But these, but these two are like the the, the legends of uh, more modern and old sci-fi. Hmm. Yes. And it's a. Like I, say, I like to think character. actually, rather than thinking of comparing them, and rather than thinking of who would win in a fight, what I would love to see is the two of them in a bar, share, swapping war stories, and then like going out and deciding on local a government blinds. You know. Yeah, yeah. Either the Empire or the Alliance. Don't care which. Taking down Jabba. Yeah, yeah. Actually, getting frozen in carbonite is pretty cool as well. So, there we are. We have compared the two characters. We've disagreed on who's cooler. We have done the impossible. And that makes us mighty. I don't know who you are. 
But we're the middlesome meeples, and it's time to talk about books. A very particular set of books. Welcome to Tome Talk, and this week Matt is going to tell us about a book which, well, at first he's going to actually have to tell us what it is, um, <laughs> because I don't know what he's done to it, but it doesn't have a front cover. Like, yeah. For those of you that are, are listening rather than watching, uh, this is a, a very, well, you could call it a very well-loved book or a very yes. well-hated book. Yes, depending. well, I, I uh, took very good care of my book collection for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had children. Right. W- this one was on the side and my young youngest child happened to come across it and he thought it looked nice, he thought it looked mm. interesting. And in doing so, it, the uh, front and back of the book have been torn off. It doesn't actually affect the story. This I've still got everything for the story. I've still I'm got all the introductory take the story out. bits. <laughs> yeah, um, change the ending. <laughs> there's still several pages left before you get to the story. It's just the literally the cover page and the, yeah. the back page are gone. It starts with a list of characters, doesn't it? It, it does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is, book is actually the Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Okay. Now, this is the first book of the Dragonlance Chronicles, which uh, some of our viewers and listeners may have heard of. Uh, this is by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Okay. Um, two people. Two people, yeah. Two authors. And they wrote all of the uh, Dragonlance books together. Mm. Right. And this is actually quite interesting because this is published by Wizards of the Coast originally. It was right. from 1984. Mm-hmm. Now, Wizards of the Coast, for some of our gaming audience, will know that um, they were the pu- they're the people behind D&D. Right, okay. Okay, yeah. so, and that really does tell you a lot of what you need to know about this well, book. Well, yeah, um, actually, the logo looks similar to D&D. Yeah. That I can see. And there is actually a Dragonlance board game as well. I don't know if you've noticed, but Richard can see up on that corner of the room, there is a Dragonlance board game. Yes, that looks quite old. And it's, um, if you actually, it's kind of like the forerunner of the D&D Attack Wing. Right, that oh. kind of aerial dragon combat, but going off off topic now, bringing it back to the um, the book story. This is a book that I would say, if you are a, a fan of fantasy mm-hmm. and you are of a certain age, you will probably have picked up and read at some point in your life. Okay. If you are younger than a certain age, you probably wouldn't have done. So are you younger I than am, the age? Or? I am of the age group that I think would have picked oh. this up and read it and because of when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that this is a book that if you are a D&D player or a role player, you'll probably jump, you would have jumped on very much in when it first came out because um, the actual story itself is based on a D&D session that the authors played. Right. <laughs> oh, okay, so basically you play a game of D&D and then you write down what happened yeah. in a in a proper prose way. Yeah. And actually, funnily enough, um, a friend of mine, uh, Ryan, when we were playing role-playing games when we were younger, he actually did write some stories based on some of our role-play sessions hmm. and they were quite hilarious. That's a good idea. Um, I don't think he's even got them anything more. I think they're on an old hard drive somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, um, as we say, this was based on a D&D session played by the authors and... It does very much feel when you're reading it like um, watching a roleplay group uh, because you've got a, the story, you've got the characters in this book are like almost cliched now within fantasy and within D and D squads because you've when got when it's not, but it's like that in tech. Yeah, stereotype start somewhere. Yeah, and uh, the 
people that make up the uh, party in this game, mm -hmm. you've got Tannis, Tannis Half-Elven. Now, he's quite an interesting character in the sense that he's caught between two worlds because his mother uh, was Elven. Mm -hmm. His father was a human warrior. He doesn't know who he is. He just knows that during a war between the Elves and the humans that his mother was raped by a human warrior. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he does kind of hate the human side of him because of that. Mm -hmm. But also... Um, because elves are generally distrusted, he grows a beard so that he can sort of pass off as human as he travels around. Okay. So he's got quite an interesting mixed heritage, and he's he kind of tries to ad adhere more to the elven side of him, mm -hmm. but in the same time, he's in love with both an elvish woman, Lorana, uh, and a human swordswoman, Kitiara. Right. And that again is quite you know symbolic of that inner struggle between those two uh, halves of himself the so elvish half yeah. and the human half so he learns not to tar all humans with the same brush yeah and he does have human friends that he's, he's yeah. close to he just hates that uh, part of himself because growing up amongst the elves he was uh, basically treated by the elves as if he was a human right. uh, and so he wasn't trusted he wasn't really one of them mm -hmm. but then at the same time is caught between two worlds because when humans see the ears, they just see the elf. Spock. They yeah, they don't see the human part of him. So he's kind mm. of an outcast in in two worlds because of his heritage. Because like, like Spock's half human, but because he's the only Vulcan, we he seems very <laughs> Vulcan to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so that's quite an interesting. Makes for quite an interesting part of a character, but it's mm. very much um, like the typical trope of the stoic uh, leader. Uh, mm -hmm. But he's got this inner struggle. It's kind of like a uh, Aragon, if you, if in a way. Right. But it's kind of like a dumbed down version of Aragon. Mm. Um, but he, it's it makes so, for an interesting. <laughs> Aragon was more nuanced, but he was like done from Ara decades before. <laughs> <laughs> Aragon was written, you know, as a much more nuanced character. I, I felt. But other members of the party, Stern Brightblade, Stern Brightblade. Now he was a knight of Salamnia. Mm -hmm. Um, now, the knights were revered before an event called the Cataclysm, which happened in the past of this world. It's based on the world of Kren. The event. The event. <laughs> yeah. And since then, the knights have fallen into disgrace. Um, and yeah. he's trying to restore the knights to a place of honour, because he is probably the most honourable and honour-bound character in this book. If you imagine Worf in fantasy... <laughs> that's the right. kind of person he is everything he does he he's is to try and protect and defend others he's he's really like when like when Q made them all go to medieval times <laughs> and <laughs> we found out that the wolf was not a merry man uh, yeah. yeah that's what so I imagine when you say that <laughs> he's like a very much the stoic okay. character right um, then other characters are Goldmoon who's the chieftain's daughter they encounter she's not a, a member of the party in the beginning of the story, she's an NPC. But within the first few, uh, you know, first few pages, practically, she's become a member of the group because okay. they're trying to help her. But we'll come back to that later. Riverwind is Goldwind's com uh, Goldmoon's companion. Mm -hmm. He's another member, like Goldmoon, of the Keshu tribe. Right. Um, but he's an, he's been outcast, but he's in love with Goldmoon. Um, Raceland. Now, there's a, a pair of brothers in this: Raceland mm -hmm. and Caramon. Okay. Raceland is the Marge of the group. Mm -hmm. uh, Raceland Magier. Now, he is very much the typical Marge trope. Uh, very cliched. He's a, the one thing that is really interesting about the character is that he basically destroyed his, destroyed his health 
doing certain like uh, Mars trials right. in order to attain a certain level of power. Mm. So he's got this incredible power, but matched with an incredibly weak body. <laughs> so his brother Caramon is always trying to look out for him, look after him, make sure that you know he's okay. And Raceland hates that because he's incredibly intelligent and thinks his brothers are oafish simpleton right. which in but he needs saving sometimes <laughs> in some <laughs> ways he is kind of quite simple as a character mm. Caramon is uh, Caramon is the warrior um, he's like a the barbarian warrior of the group and um, he is very genial he's like the exact opposite of Raceland right. um, but he's always there trying to look after Raceland okay. um, and then the rest of the party is made up by Flint Fireforge mm-hmm. who's a dwarven blacksmith and fighter uh, he's Tannis's oldest friend he's older than the rest of the group he considers the group to be children basically <laughs> but he doesn't like wrestling okay. and then there's Tass Tasselhoff Burfoot but Tass is a kender um, these are kind of like almost not quite dwarves but d- child sized right. um, and completely immune to fear the kenders are but just generally goes around emptying everyone else's possessions into his <laughs> uh but not he wouldn't consider it thieving and would probably consider it be quite upset if you called him a thief but um just everyone else's possessions just seem to find their way into his bag mm. and he's he's the he's like the the guide the scout he's got all well, everyone's collection of maps. just against him they? yeah <laughs> <laughs> so these are the characters that make up the you know the the group, and as a, as you can tell, they're quite um, quite the fantasy and D and D party kind of tropes. They go around together as a party after a while, do they? Yeah. Like well, they, the story starts with them coming together. Now, one of the main themes um, that the writers have, have said in interviews and things of this is the restoration of truth and faith. So, when the cataclysm happened, you've got the like the evil gods and the true gods, the gods mm-hmm. of light and darkness, uh, right. battling. Then the gods seem to disappear. <laughs> now, five years before we get into the story, uh, the group have all gone off on individual quests of their own, and they <laughs> planned and arranged to meet up uh, together at this tavern okay. uh, on this at uh, this particular day with the D twenties. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so they come together, and Tannis was trying to find some sort of sign of of uh, of the gods. Okay, you know, um, yeah. and. What happens here? I don't want to go into spoilers, but they come together and they hear this story. Uh, well, not the story, but they hear rumours of this blue crystal staff mm-hmm. and that these seekers seekers are after it. So, they when they come back to the tavern, the, their hometown has been occupied by the seekers. Right. Uh, anyway, with I don't want to go into any as I say spoilers. So, they find out that the find these two uh, barbarian plainsmen and mm-hmm. a plainswoman. Um, one of whom has the blue crystal staff. Right. So they have to get her out to safety before the Seekers take her. Mm-hmm. So they do that. Then, as the story progresses, they become attacked by Draconians, which are like these reptilian lizard men. Um, then they get pointed off. They have to start going uh, after these discs of Mishakal, which contain the truth about the, the old gods, the true gods. Um, and they basically it's I don't, it's kind of very difficult not to give spoilers about this because there well, are just, so many different strands to this story but it's all one thing leading to another thing and it's, it's if the best way I can think of describing it is if you're on a role playing campaign 
and each of the little sessions, each of the little quests lead into the big quest. Yeah, it's well, kind of like that. So like one, that's what they did. one session leads into another session, and then from there to there, and that's mm. very much how the story progresses. But if you don't want to do spoilers, just tell us the themes. So more. the themes, as we say, are uh, the the characters coming together. Forming this really strong, tightly knit group, having and sharing, and we see the one one. I say the predominant theme is this restoration of truth and faith. Yeah. So Tannis and the others have lost their their faith. They don't believe that the and like everybody else, they don't believe that the the gods are going to return. Same with Sturm. He believes that Paladine is 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 gone uh, but will come back mm. um, and it's you see Tannis as time goes on starts to he starts to see evidence of true clerics and evidence that you know the gods are going to return so that really right. really is there but it's all overlaid with this D&D party and this quest so the bigger stuff going on there is bigger the stuff quest. Yeah. so yeah oh, that's, that's interesting so how many um how many of these books are there? You say it's a series. It's uh, well, there's the dra- these were actually based on the Dragonlance game modules. So mm-hmm. the uh, the story, these books and stories came based on the uh, the game and the established right. world okay. of the game. There were quite a number of Dragonlance books, but these are the specifically the Dragonlance Chronicles. Right. Um, so you've got three, I think four um, altogether in the Dragonlance Chronicles. Well, that's quite doable for um, reading. Yeah, this, and, and then there's more stories beyond that. Um, but there's also a ca- cartoon adaptation of this which was uh, made back in 2008 that had oh, Michael... I wanted it to be made in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it had, well, it was kind of, it felt like it was made in the 80s. <laughs> right. It's kind of got, got a mixture of like 2D and 3D animation in the film. Oh, cool. um, Lucy Lawless pl- it does the voice for Goldmoon. Right. Uh, well, yeah, Kiefer, she needs to be in a, a fantasy thing. Kiefer Sutherland does the b- voice of Raislin. Okay. And Michael Rosenbaum does uh, the voice of Tannis. Right. So, oh, quite a, a good voice cast. The mm. film itself isn't great. <laughs> um, but I would say, as uh, with the, when it comes to this story, that I was thinking about whether or not I could really recommend this for people to go out and read. And I thought I was going to do that, because... When I read this as a kid, I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. I read it again a few years later, and I loved it a little less. <laughs> and oh, you then... hate it. <laughs> I wouldn't say I hate this book. Uh, no. Far from it, because it's it's got like a bit of a special place mm-hmm. uh, for me because it was one of the early books of fantasy that I read. Yeah. And I, I re- reading it more recently with the thought of of uh, doing this for Tome Talk, I have to admit that I just it wasn't as good as I remember it. I think I've read too much better fantasy since mm. reading this. And yeah. as a result, uh, the way I interpret this book has gone down in my estimation. So like everything else has got better and yeah. the books stay the same obviously. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that if you like role playing uh, games, particularly mm. D&D, then this is a book that you would probably enjoy. I and it, I feel like yeah. it's a very good starting point if uh, when it comes to fantasy for for kids or even yeah. maybe for adults when it comes to uh, fantasy, you know, rather than jumping into something like The Wheel of Time, which is an epic series and it's my favourite fantasy series, mm. but it's huge. Yeah. This would make a much better starting entry for somebody. Oh, actually, I, I like the idea of this from what you've been saying about it because 
like this kind of thing, like what would happen in a role playing game, is mm. part of what fantasy is meant to be, yeah. isn't it? And obviously, years later, they've had to build on that, mm. make things more complicated. But it's nice to read something that's kind of back to the core of what an adventure should be. And like to you, it just seems a bit too basic mm. or something now. But yeah, if someone is just going to start reading a fantasy book, I, I think, think the thing is, when I was going back to this, I was seeing all the cliches, all the tired tropes. Yeah. If I was new to reading fantasy books, I wouldn't know these cliches. I wouldn't know the tired tropes, and I think I would enjoy like, it. A wow, lot more. wizard! <laughs> <laughs> I think it would just be so much better if I'd not been so well read with fantasy. So I think if you are, as a starting place, this is probably going to be quite a good starting place for you to be reading. Uh, fantasy. If you're a kid, you're going to absolutely love this character. I mean, several people that I n- knew as kids read this book, and we all loved it. Mm. And then we went back to it later years. We all thought, it, you know, it wasn't actually that great. But it's good for their inner child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in those situations, you'd probably love it. And as I say, um, it still holds a special place for me. And one of the reasons I actually nearly didn't do this tone talk this time. I was gonna. I was thinking about talking about a different book instead, mm. um, but I thought actually I'd rather talk about this now because yeah. then some of those later fantasy books will will be better. Mm. Otherwise, if you re- read those and then read this one, you'd be probably disappointed. Right. Okay. <laughs> so if you're going to read a lot of fantasy books, try and read this one early on. Um, because you might not want to read it later. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're a kid, read it as well. So this is Dragons of Autumn Twilight, and that's by who? Tracy Weiss and Margaret Hickman. Hey, thanks, because the front cover's gone. Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. I always get those confused. Nice save, though. Good that you realised it. You didn't have to go back and edit later. So (laughs) that is Tone Talk for this week. So thank you for watching. Stay meddlesome. Well, that was fun! Let's carry on with the show! The Meeple's Alive! So, for our podcast listeners, you can't see this, but I'm currently wearing my Harvey Birdman Attorney at Law helmet, which I I made and wore for um, Comic-Con a few years ago when we did a we Harvey Birdman been... cosplay you group. Made. <laughs> Me and Heather made. Well, no, Mentok the Mind Taker made. Yep, <laughs> Heather was Mentok the Mind Taker. Sleepless Nights! I was Phil, Phil and Seb. Ken, Seb. Burn. <laughs> as he would say. Uh, <laughs> I may have to upload a picture to our Instagram of that uh, little cosplay group actually at some point. Yeah, you should. That was fun. Yeah. Um, for some reason. Occasionally I wear a random hat at the end of recording. Um, just and, so. And just generally through the day sometimes. Usually it's the hat of infinity I wear, just so that we know we're coming to a conclusion and to wrap wrap it up. We never know when Boba Fett's going to turn up. No, there's that too. Um, Like, people see death just before the end. (laughs) If you're wearing the hat of infinity, things are about to to get weird. (laughs) Because, you know, I know things are getting weird. (laughs) So that was episode 15 of the Medicine Meeples. As you see, we needed a lawyer after what we were saying today, so we have Harvey Birdman with us. Javier Corpus. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still say Mal is definitely the better and more nuanced character. I think you just feel sorry for him, Mal, because he got cancelled after one season. <laughs> I, just, I will be fighting the brown coat cause. It's just like, like things like, in, uh, you know, when you him and Wash were captured and tortured. 
for oh, example. Oh yeah, you said you wanted to carry yeah. on going on about it. Yeah. <laughs> I did say that. It's a pity but, affection for it. But <laughs> don't you remember when um, Mel and Wash was uh, being captured and they were, they were being tortured and the guy cuts Mel's ear off and everything. Yeah. But even during that, he spends the whole time telling Wash how when it's all done, he's going to get out and he's going to get 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 it on with Zoe, Wash's mm. wife. And he's just making Wash mad so that they can get through the torture, just to help him to not give up and keep fighting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. Yeah. But I mean, anything you say right now is just not going to take seriously. Yeah, we're going to take things... Attorney at law? Yeah. Yeah, we're taking... Avenger! Opinions on what's cool from you at this moment, isn't really. Well, it would be a lot cooler if I was wearing my whole Harvey Birdman costume. That was pretty good. The wings were annoying. (laughs) You got space, I'll give you that. No, I didn't. That was the problem. That's why the wings were annoying. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, people people liked it. They came up for pictures. So thank you for joining us for episode 15 of the Meddlesome Meeples. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Uh, we're going to be talk. We're not sure what we're going to be talking about on everything, but we'll most likely be talking about letters from Whitechapel and fate of the Elder Gods for oh, our no. um, for our next couple of quest reports. Two scary games. That is correct. They're always scary at the moment. Even bears versus yeah, that's pretty scary. You have to yeah, admit, kind of in a yeah. good way, especially if you've got kids. No, no, it's got a bold eagle who's satisfying. also a taco. Mm, our nervous system's just shot from all these scary games now. <laughs> just, just trembling every day. <laughs> That's why we need a hero and a lawyer. <laughs> Not even a good one. <laughs> well, I I have to defend Richard's views on certain things. Yeah, just because I don't agree with him doesn't mean that I don't support his right to say yeah, those things. Yeah, and you have to go to court and defend my right to say things. <laughs> You have a weird relationship. (laughs) This is coming from me. Yeah, it's coming from your wife. (laughs) Okay. So there we are. Thank you for joining us. Stay meddlesome. And if you're not meddlesome, become meddlesome. And if you're too meddlesome, call Harvey Birdman. (laughs) He'll get you off. And don't get me to clean it (laughs) off. Phrasing. Oh, there was some phrasing there. Farewell, Quester, and thanks for joining us. If you wish to avoid the wrath of Greyskarn the Black, then subscribe to our show before you depart. Our fortress is located at meddlesomemeeples.com or join our banners by rendezvousing with us at facebook.com forward slash meddlesomemeeples, instagram.com forward slash the meddlesomemeeples, or follow the flight of the mountain bluebird to at meddlesomemeeples. Until next time, Quester, farewell and keep thine axe sharp.